All right, so I'm going to start with a story. Um, 18 years ago on, uh, it was the week of Mardi Gras, Todd Tucker and I lived together. Many of y'all don't know this. Uh, We lived together for a few years, and um, we were out looking at houses. We were living in a house renting, and we were looking at renting other houses, and Todd just goes, man, I feel like doing something crazy and irresponsible today. He's like, all right. He's like, what if we just like got in the car? He's like, you know, uh, spring training starting this week for baseball. What if we just got in the, in the truck and just drove? Uh, just drove down to Florida. I'm like, what if, Todd? Uh, we get back to the house, and I'm sitting on my computer doing something, probably playing a game. And I start hearing like zippers from Todd's room. And I'm like, Todd, are you packing? He says, nope. I'm packed. Um, I was like, dude, give me like two minutes. And so I go and throw a bunch of Florida appropriate apparel into a little duffel bag that I've got. And we hop in the truck, Todd's big old black F-250. And we get on the road and we start driving. Um, I I was a teacher at the time, so I didn't have school. Um, And we got to, you know, that place where 10 and 59 split, that really confusing exit you have to think about every single time you pass it. You're like, wait, which one? Um, spur of the moment, we're like, what if we just go north instead? And so we go north. Uh, and by the time we had made it to Montgomery, Alabama, we decided that we were going to Connecticut and New York City. Uh, we spent the night in a truck uh, just north of the South Carolina, North Carolina border. We then went and visited the ESPN studios in Bristol, Connecticut, uh, just from the outside because it was late at night when we got there, we stayed at a really expensive, sketchy motel in Connecticut. Uh, we went and spent a day in New York. I, I went behind the, the scenes at the Metropolitan Opera House, and Todd did whatever he did. And then we went to Canton, Ohio, for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And then we eventually made our way back home. Um, Todd footed the bill for this entire trip. I, I probably still owe him uh, copious amounts of money for it with interest. It's probably really bad. Um, uh, there's a reason I'm telling the story, though, is that, is that Todd Tucker is a doer. Todd does things. Uh, and so in the face of what's going on here at school, the word where Peter is having more and more, uh, he's having another surgery, a fusion, it sounds like. Um, he'll be out for an extended amount of time. Uh, we needed a doer, and we got a doer. So Todd is coming on another crazy trip with us. Um, we have one more passenger, and he's... He's who he is. Uh, no, Peter and I and, uh, and Todd are going to be working together on this. We sat together this Tuesday over breakfast and coffee and just discussed a lay of the land for the next couple months. Uh, and I'm excited to have him on the team. I'm excited. You know, we're both just part of Peter's team at this point in time, and it's exciting to be working with these guys. Two guys who honestly intimidate me with their ability to handle scripture, with their wisdom, with their knowledge. Um, that's a little scary for me. Uh, but I'm excited to have really strong teammates in this. So uh, I'm going to be teaching this week, obviously, next week, and then the following week because Todd's going to be out of town. After that, he's going to take an, at least the next two, maybe three weeks, and we'll we're just kind of kind of play it from there. We'll probably get together every month or so and kind of chart out chunks and you know uh, game plan for things. So y'all, welcome Todd to the team. He's been around forever here. So thank you, Todd, for stepping in. Uh, cause this takes a lot of work and it's helpful to have somebody who can 
you know, have another person who can, can carry the load with us. So uh, open your Bibles to 1 John 3, uh, where we're continuing. Verses 19 through 22 is what we're going to cover today. Um, sometimes, like last week, the passage is fairly straightforward and easy, and so we'll do it more like a preaching, exhorting style like I did. I've got cute, like, alliterative points that we're working down. Um, and then sometimes you get to this passage, a passage like this one, which one commentator, and then another commentator agreed with him as I was reading, that called it a locus vexatissimus, meaning an extremely, extremely vexing passage. Uh, very, very difficult. Um, and so what I thought it was best for us to do this week is to take this passage little chunk by little chunk. And we're going to look at about five to 10 words at a time, figure out what John's talking about and put it all in place. So it's going to be kind of slow grinding work today, but I think it's important to approach it that way. So, um, and one little note here, I'm reading from the CSV today, a CSB. Um, the reason being, and we'll get into this a little bit more, I like the way that this translation breaks up the phrases um, I think it makes clear what ideas go together better than the ESV does. Again, the guys that translated the ESV are way smarter than I'll ever be. And if I told them why I thought this one was better, they'd have lots of reasons I couldn't answer about why theirs was right. Personally, though, this just feels like it resonates more with the flow of the passage. So I'm going to read from that. You should get the general gist from your ESV. And actually, looking at the ESV while I read the CSB may help you to, to kind of understand some of the, the differences and why they're important. Verse 19, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. So remember for the last few weeks, John has been expounding on what I was talking about, the, the farewell discourse that John 13 through 16, this is like his commentary, if you will, or extrapolation of some of those ideas. And, and specifically, he's looking at John 15, 16 here as the closest analog. Um, and it's where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So our subject that we're dealing with today is, is specifically prayer. How do we have confidence before God to approach him in prayer and to know that we'll, we will receive what we ask? Um, I want to start with this phrase, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth, because this is one of the first um, conditions for having confidence before God in prayer. And I think the the real... It feels silly to dwell on one word, but this word is this. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth. Remember last verse, the last passage we were talking about, we were talking about loving our, our brothers, loving them sacrificially, loving them in truth and in deed, not just in word. So coming from there, and then, so he explains this, and then he says, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth. And the question about this word, this, is, is John pointing back at what he just said to say, hey, if we do this, this is how we would know that we belong to the truth? Or is he pointing forward? Um, I'm going to contrast John's writing with Paul's writing because Paul uses a lot of these 
retrospective transitions. He'll say something and then he'll say, therefore, in light of what I just said, this, and they'll say, because of this, then this, therefore this, that's that linear writing we've talked about him doing. John, John's transitions tend to be prospective. He says, this is how, or this is why, or this is what. And then he goes forward and says, and explains the this after he says this. I'm just giving you a few examples. And this is only going up to where we are in first John so far. This is the message that we heard from him and declare to you. God is light. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands by this, we may, may we know that we are in him. Whoever abides says he, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk. And this is the promise he made to us eternal life. By this is it evident who are the children of God, whoever does not practice righteousness. I mean, uh, sorry, whoever does practice righteousness for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another by this. We know love that he laid down his life. Do y'all see that? This is John's pattern. He says, here's a, this I'm explain it. Here's a, this I'm going to explain it. Right? So given that context, we can be fairly confident here. John is not changing his style of writing for this one passage. He's not making this dependent on what he just said. He's explaining it by what is coming after he's writing, what he's writing here. Does that make sense to everybody? Cool. Um, next chunk. And will reassure our hearts before him. Um, the words before him here. What are we talking about? Uh, the context as we look forward is defined in verses 21 and 22. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, which is all, we're all in the same this passage, right? We have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. So the context of being before God here specifically is talking about being before him in prayer, coming before God in prayer and asking with confidence. Note that at the end of verse of chapter two, verse 28, there's a different before God and, and different confidence being discussed in that passage. John is talking about confidence before God at his return as at Christ's return at the final judgment, having confidence. We also have that confidence. This is just talking about a different confidence that we can have. We can have confidence coming before God to ask what we ask from him. Um, and that clarifies our central question. These two phrases by this, right? By this, we'll know that we belong to the truth and we'll have confidence before him. So we're in the truth. We are his children. We are in Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we are coming before him in prayer. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but have you ever felt like I've sinned? I screwed something up. I can't pray. Have any of you ever had that experience? The feeling of shame and embarrassment. I feel like I've messed things up. I shouldn't have said that thing. I shouldn't have watched that thing. I shouldn't have done that thing. And now I can't even come to God for in repentance, almost that that much shame, or even if I can come to God in repentance, the last thing I expect to be able to do is come to God and ask for anything because I've let him down. Am I the only person who's ever experienced this? Anybody? Okay. Um, what do I do in those moments? How do I know, how do I override what my brain and my heart are conspiring to tell myself 
in that moment about how my shortcomings limit my access to God's throne. Um, and the fact that we can all raise our hands, I think that lends some credence to this translation, the CSB, uh, which says, whenever our hearts condemn us. I think the ESV says, if our hearts condemn us, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. Um, whenever our hearts condemn us. What, what's the different implications of those two words? Hey, like, if this happens versus, hey, whenever this happens. Those are really different things. Um, whenever your car is low on gas, you need to fill it up. The implication is this is going to happen often. If your transmission blows up, do this. That's not necessarily going to happen. But the idea here is that John is talking about a situation that is going to be common in the experience of the believer. The believer is going to run into this pro problem. It seems like it's assumed that the believer will and that it will happen more often, more, more than once, okay? And so it's whenever our hearts condemn us. That word condemn is important. How many of you guys have ever done anything wrong? Have ever sinned? Okay. This is like Christianity 101, I know. Um, how many of you have been convicted of sin? The Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin. That is a feature, not a bug. Okay. That's the way it's supposed to work. Right. What we are talking about in this passage is not the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. God gave his Holy Spirit for multiple reasons, and one of them is to convict of sin, okay? Conviction is a part of the natural process of progressive sanctification. That's how God built the system to work. We're convicted of something in us. We come before him and repent. We grow. We change, sometimes more quickly than others. And then we're convicted again. It's a normal, it's breathing. It is breathing for the believer. It's the work of the believer. Uh, condemnation takes those feelings of conviction and inflates them to the point where they, they eclipse the work of Christ. They block it out. They obscure it to where we can't see. We don't even have the option of repentance. Condemnation, conviction leads to repentance. Condemnation makes repentance seem like it's not an option because I don't have anyone I can go to because I'm condemned. If you're condemned, repentance doesn't matter. If you're condemned to death for something, you can repent all you want. You will not have your sentence overturned more than likely. Um, conviction is different here. Um, Romans 8, 1, you guys all know this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And these words are interesting because a couple of verses ago in verse 19, this is how we will know that we belong to, or sometimes in some translations you will see that we are in the truth. So we are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Being in the truth is this idea of abiding in Christ that we're talking about. As we abide in Christ, Romans 8.1 tells us there isn't condemnation for you. Condemnation is a bug. Conviction is a feature. Conviction is the way it's supposed to work. Condemnation is not a, should not be a normal part of the life of the believer, okay? However, I say should not, John seems to indicate that you are still going to face this. You're still going to fight this. So 
I want you to hear that the difference between these two words, conviction is normative. It is what happens and it's what should happen. Condemnation can sometimes become more or less normal. It's what happens, but not necessarily what should happen. Do you all understand those two differences there? Um, Good. That's important. What John is saying here is that if we are in Christ Jesus, our hearts may be reassured before him uh, and based not on what we've done, but what on, he, on what he has done. And his logic for this is interesting. And this is the part that really, this is the locus vexatissimus right here. This is the hardest part of this passage uh, to make sense of. He says, why? For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. How does it make you, and I want you to specifically think of when you've sinned. How does it make you feel to know that God knows everything? Feel that in your gut. Go back to when you were a kid and you were doing something wrong and hiding it from your parents and your mom or dad says, hey, I know everything. How does that feel? Uh, I know how that would make me feel. That's a terrifying thought, right? The idea that God knows the depths of the sin in your heart in a way that you don't. Um, we talk about this process of, of progressive sanctification and think about it as, as peeling an onion or digging, right? You, you dig out some sin and then sure enough, as soon as you get that one out, you see something else there, right? And then you go over and you did that one. And then sometimes you dig something up and then it's like there where you were digging. There's like something else more beneath it. Like, oh, that's not even like what I thought it was. It's this other thing. And, in, and there's this constant being made aware of a sin, battling it, hopefully overcoming it, and then something else comes up. Because we talked about that, what I call the Dunning-Kruger effect of sin, where the more sanctified become, we become, the more we become aware of the, the remnant sins in our lives, those remaining lagging sins. Um, we don't have, by the grace of God, the ability, the moment that we are saved, to know the depth of every sinful action, word, and motive in our hearts. That is the grace of God entirely. We are protected from that because that would be completely overwhelming. I don't know that we could handle the degree of, of guilt that would come with that. God is gracious to reveal our sins to us in a way that is patient and kind and slow and and as we are empowered by his Holy Spirit. Um, the reality is that our hearts aren't equipped. Un, like, it takes a certain amount of sanctification to be aware that other things that I'm doing are sinful. Uh, we are, our hearts are in some ways normalized to the sin in them until we become sanctified. It's like when my boys go out and like jump on the trampoline and run around in the yard for like three hours in the summer, they come in, they don't know what they smell like. I walk, they walk in, I'm like, you guys smell like puppy dogs. How often do you, boys, I say it all the time, right? Y'all smell like puppy dogs. Um, it's because a, a, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old boy running around outside in July are going to smell funky, but they don't know that because they're just, they smell like them, you know? Um, I think that's in some ways our hearts. We don't know what we smell like all the time. And that's the grace of God. Um, and even if we could understand the depths of our sin, we can't understand God's greatness and his holiness. We can't fully comprehend 
the majesty of the God we've sinned against. So that's the other extension. Like, not only don't we know the depth of our own hearts, we don't know the greatness of God. Um, only God is con- capable of containing all of those ideas. Um, the idea of the full weight of our sin, his omniscience from beginning to end, knowing the sins we have committed and the sins we will commit and his own greatness. It takes an infinite mind to grasp all of that. And we can't do that. God's eternality is only capable of doing that. Um, And in that sense, it is a terrifying idea to know that God knows everything when I've sinned. However, and I think that's true, by the way, I don't think that's the only thing God knows. Um, God constantly has in mind something of which we can too often lose awareness, and that's the gospel. Um, I want you guys to realize this. When our hearts condemn us, our hearts condemn God. Because in the moment when we are... The implication that we've done something so wrong that we have outpaced God's grace and love or invalidated the work of Christ, that's an attack on God's character. Do y'all understand that? For me to say, I know Jesus died on the cross, but I did this thing, is putting limits and bounds and accusing God of finiteness in his grace and mercy. It's limiting the work that he can do. Um, We're saying your sacrifice wasn't enough to cover this sin or this attitude. Or, God, you are unjust and you will require double payment for this sin. You'll require my payment and Christ's payment for this sin. And we are impugning God's character when we wallow in that kind of condemnation. There's some debate in this passage about whether it is the person's heart condemning them or Satan. Um, I typically lean towards me over Satan just because I got a feeling like I've got enough screw ups in me. Satan has bigger fish to fry than me. I will screw things up on my own. I don't need his help. However, I will say this about this passage. The idea of this condemnation and this questioning God's grace sounds a whole lot like hath God really said. You know, and the the first lie was, did God really say that you would surely die if you ate this, this fruit? Taking the word of God and twisting it. Condemnation is a, has God really said you're forgiven? Has God really said everything? Has God really said no condemnation? Because this sure feels like you should be condemned for this. Do you see that work that Satan can do in your heart um, that can invalidate and twist the word of God and make it not apply to you and make yourself the judge? Just like with Adam and Eve, just like Satan said, hey, you get to be the judge in this situation if you do this. This is the same thing. Hey, you get to be the judge over whether you're condemned or not. God doesn't know what he's doing. But God knows the gospel. So in arguably the greatest scene in maybe the greatest movie of all time. I hear debates on this, but uh, the man in black and Inigo Montoya 
uh, are sword fighting on the top of a cliff in the movie The Princess Bride. And the man in black has the sword master, Inigo Montoya, kind of backed over a cliff. And Inigo Montoya says, you are wonderful. Um, he say, and the man in black says, why are you smiling? He says, because I know something you don't know. I say, what's that? I'm not left-handed. And he switches over to his right hand, and then he backs up the man in black. Spoiler alert, the man in black is also not left-handed, but whatever. Um, this passage is God's, I know something you don't know. We so quickly lose sight of the gospel. We, we don't remember it when we condemn ourselves. And God says, I know something you don't know. In this moment, you don't know. You maybe know, but you don't know that my son died for you. You don't know that there's no condemnation. You don't know that your guilt is covered. But I know that. In that sense, friends, it is so good that God knows everything. Because we don't. He says, yep, you're a sinner. But I know something you don't know. My son died to save sinners. Right? He doesn't forget our sins. This is the idea that God knows everything. Sometimes we get this idea that God doesn't remember that we've sinned. No, he remembers, but he doesn't hold them against us because they're paid for. That's justice. And he was aware of all of this when he signed the deal, guys. Sometimes we have an easier job accepting, or easier time understanding and accepting, not that our acceptance of God's forgiveness is bearing on its effectiveness, but we have an easier time understanding, at least, God's forgiveness of our sins before we were saved. Do y'all have that feeling? Like, yeah, well, I wasn't a Christian then. Of course I was an idiot. But then we feel like we're supposed to be perfect after the fact. And all of a sudden, like, there's a whole new deal with like, this works righteousness thing that I have to earn my salvation now. That's just not the case. God exists outside of time. Time is something God baked into the universe so we'd have some sense of, like, order of things. But he doesn't need that. And he sees everything you've ever done, sees everything you ever will do, everything you ever thought, everything you ever will think. And he says, that's all covered. That's all baked into the deal. Okay, we don't get to load things in after the fact to try to stump him. Um, God knew everything and loved you and sent his son to die for you. It is awe-inspiring that God knows everything. Um, it is humbling and it should curry our hearts towards worship and towards gratitude, not towards guilt. Um, the fact that God knows our sin should make us not feel more guilty, but more grateful that he died in our place. God knows everything. So what? Next chunk. Dear friends, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him. Do y'all ever have trouble with these whatever we ask passages? There's a couple here. There's one later we'll cover in, in 1 John 5. Jesus talked about it, the passage we were talking about. You have whatever you ask. Do y'all ever feel like your prayers don't get answered? Do these verses kind of make you mad a little bit? Like what, what's the deal? Um, or does it feel kind of cringy, like prosperity gospel type stuff? Do you start like feeling like all of a sudden like you're like, you're turned on like TBN all of a sudden and there's some like televangelists telling you that you can have whatever you ask for. 
It's a weird verse. It's okay if it's weird. It should feel a little weird because it doesn't match up at least with what we think we experience uh, practically. Um, I love this, this thought on this by Danny Aiken in his commentary. He says, the clause, whatever we ask, is all-inclusive and leaves open both the content and the occasion for our requests. At the same time, this statement requires that both the immediate and remote context must be taken into consideration with this statement. Translation, what I said a few weeks ago, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You have to read a verse in its context. Don't just read a Bible verse. The immediate context suggests that the one asking is the one who is striving to obey his commands and do what pleases him. Likewise, 5, 14 through 15, which we'll cover a month or two from now, I guess, somewhere in that neighborhood, states that the prayer is to be offered according to his will. The guarantee of answered prayer is based on the proper standing of the petitioner, which in return gives him confidence to approach God freely and openly. So you see the context here is asking God according to his will and also a striving for obedience and pleasing God. This is not a name it and claim it verse. This is not teaching that faith or obedience is like some magic key that gets you whatever wants. John is not saying that if you do the right things and believe the right things, you will have a private jet and lots of cars and a fancy house at the end of Ormond Boulevard. He's not saying any of that stuff here. What he's saying is if you pray according to God's will, your prayers will be answered in God's will. Um, if you want to get material with this, and I put this in your notes here, the closest way we can understand this as to meaning material goods is to think of Philippians 4, where Paul is thanking the Philippians for their generosity and saying, and my God will supply all of your needs. And saying, because you are generous, there's a faithfulness in God to, in effect, reimburse you overwhelmingly uh, according to your needs uh, because of your benevolence to me and to other brothers. Remember, we're coming out of, if, if there's any materialism talked about here, John just came away from talking about the saints in this church being generous to other brothers. So if you want to say, hey, if you want to say, all right, if you want to pray, you get stuff. Uh, yeah, I think Philippians supports that. But the context here is you're giving generously and, and maybe there's some material blessing included in that. But I don't think that's the primary meaning of this passage. Um, we're talking about praying according to God's will and having it answered. Um, and, and I think, how many of you guys, when you pray, will often use the words, um, Lord, let your will be done? You ever use anything like that? Do you ever feel a little bit like it's an escape clause? It's like, hey, just in case my prayer doesn't get answered, I also prayed your will be done, so I'm covered. Do y'all ever feel that way? Am I like the only weirdo that ever feels that way? I know I'm not the only weirdo. My wife is smiling. I know she's probably done it too. Uh, your will be done is not, is not an escape clause in prayer. It is the essence of prayer. That's what John's saying here is your prayers are answered as you pray in his will, as you strive for the things he strives for. And remember, God's will is sovereign and perfect and wise. And so when we pray outside of his will, God is good to us to give us his will instead. Does that make sense? Y'all know the passage where Jesus talks about which of you, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake? 
Um, if one of my sons asked me, hey, can I have, they probably wouldn't ask for a fish, maybe like a little toad if I'm like handing them, not, not to eat, just like, hey, uh, I would not give them a cobra, right? Because they would die. But if one of my boys were dumb enough to ask for a cobra, I would not give them the said cobra. I'd be like, that's a dumb request. Have a toad. Okay, here, this will be more fun and you won't die. Um, That's the nature of prayer. When we say, but your will be done, what, what we're really saying is, God, you know better than me. This is what seems good and wise to me. And I think what John's saying here, because we keep his commands, because we do what is pleasing in his sight, because we're seeking after his will, more and more our will starts to line up with God. We start to pray God's heart back to him, and we see prayers answered more. But where we miss the mark, where we pray unwisely, God is gracious to do his will. So that brings the question like, so why, why is there this deal where like I obey, my, my heart has faith in a certain way, or I obey, or I keep his commands, I do what's pleasing to him, it feels like this kind of shady trade deal. If I do more of these things, then you'll listen more. And I love this. This is another great quote by Karen Jobes from her commentary. This is a hard passage, so I leaned a lot on commentaries this week. Um, Although this may sound like a quid pro quo deal, we do something for God and he repays us by granting something we ask for. It is nothing of the kind. It is another way of saying that people who keep God's command and do what pleases him know God's will. Do you get that? We start to walk closer with him. We spend more time with him. Um, those of you who are married know what that's like. like. As I spend more time with my wife, I know what she would want. And so I can lean towards doing those things and not necessarily have to worry about, is this exactly what... Because I, I, I've learned what she'd want, you know? Um, as a result, they will only ask what is consistent with what they know of God, for they are his children. Jesus taught that following him requires us to trust and depend on the Father and to ask as an acknowledgement of that dependence. On his last night with the disciples, he told them, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. God is pleased to grant such requests to his children because it reveals his glory through Jesus and shows that God's power is at work in the world when his children invoke it by their prayers. Prayer is not us strong-arming God into doing something that he would not otherwise do. Prayer is us coming alongside to participate with God in the work that he's doing. We are helping. (laughs) It's like when your kid helps you fix something. We are helping. Not that our work is not valid and real as we come to him in prayer, but what God delights in in our prayer is the fellowship with us and bringing us alongside him in what he's doing. And the fact that we're asking in his name, revealing the fact that his son's name is being glorified in the earth and his name is being glorified by his fellowship in the, with the saints and the bringing about of his glory in that way. 
We pray in the name of his son and according to his will, we bring glory to the son and we come into deeper fellowship with God. I put in your notes here, the prayers of the obedient heart are not answered because obedience earns God's love or special favors. It's not like I obey more so God likes me more so he gives me more things. They're answered because the obedient heart and its prayers are in tune with God's desires and his mission for the earth. We're, we're walking in closer sync with him. Our strides are matching with him. So the confidence, the takeaway from this passage, by the way, is, is to pray. You can have confidence to pray before God. You can come before him you can have confidence that your sin does not separate you from him because of the work of Christ, because you're not condemned, because God knows all things. He knows the depth of your sin, the height of his glory, and also the marvelous, marvelous extent of his mercy and grace. And because of that, you can approach him with confidence and you can come by the name of his son and pray according to his will. And God's perfect wisdom will hear your prayers. He will answer what is wisely prayed according to his will. And he will be gracious to cover even our, you know, like even my sins creep into my prayers. I pray selfishly. I pray, I'm a planner. I like to manipulate. Like if I can ask God to do this, God is gracious. He sees over that. He looks over it. He covers our prayers in his grace and he answers according to what is wise. And that, that should make us more confident to pray because I can't screw this thing up. It's not like I have some magic button that if I push it and ask for the wrong thing, I'm going to break everything. But God is gracious and wise and ordains everything according to the counsel of his will and invites us to join alongside him in moving that will forward and magnifying his son's name and coming into fellowship with him. That's awesome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we get to do this, that we get to talk to you, that this isn't me just saying words because that's what we do at the end of talking about the Bible for a few minutes. But Lord, that you listen to us, that you are omniscient and omnipotent enough to hear my words and the words of millions of other people praying right now. And Lord, you are wise enough to answer them as is wise and fit with your purposes of magnifying your name on the earth. Lord, I'm so glad that's not my job. I'm so glad I can't answer two of my kids talking at the same time, much less millions and millions of saints pouring out genuine needs before you. Lord, thank you that you are wise in how you answer prayer. Lord, help us, Lord, to come before you with confidence, with boldness, with understanding of the goodness of your grace and mercy, Lord, and the delight that you have in fellowshipping with us, Lord, that you made a man and you placed him and you walked with him in the garden. Lord, thank you that you want to fellowship with us. We absolutely do not deserve it. But Lord, we appreciate the kindness of you coming alongside us and inviting us alongside you in the work that you're doing. Lord, help us to do that work. Lord, give us confidence, Lord, and give us assurance of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.